So that artwork, uh, by the way, was actually done by a member of our congregation. Her name is Angie Conwell. She's a high schooler. And she uh, created that in honor of this series, which we are beginning this morning, that we're calling The Four Witnesses. See, one of the things that has often baffled people about uh, the Bible when they read through the New Testament is that there are four Gospels rather than one. And people are like, why are there four? Why are there four biographies of the life of Jesus? And the answer is because his life is too rich to capture in one single account. And so what we're going to be doing throughout this series over the next several weeks is we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of each one of these witnesses to see what it is they have to tell us about him, who he is, and why he matters. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the first of those Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. But I think it's only right that before we dive into Matthew's Gospel, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that on this Easter Sunday, you have gathered us together as your people that we might once more behold the beauty and the power of your resurrection. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at your word together, you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are beginning with the first gospel that you find when you open the New Testament, the gospel according to Matthew. And here's what we know about Matthew. Uh, He was also known by the name Levi, and he probably wrote his gospel sometime around 50 AD. So within about 20 years of the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And his audience was primarily Jews or Jewish Christians. And here's what we know about his life. Matthew used to be a tax collector which means that he was a collaborator with the Roman governor. He was uh, with the Roman government. He was Jewish, but he was assigned by the Romans to collect taxes from his people and then pay them to the conquering power in Rome. And the way the tax collectors made their money was not by having a wage or a salary. Basically, they were told you can collect whatever you want. As long as Rome gets its taxes, you can keep the rest. And so these were despised people. They were looked down upon by their fellow Jews. They would not have been welcome in polite religious society. But Matthew has a, life tra- uh, a life-changing moment when he encounters Jesus. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, and he leaves his tax booth behind. And he becomes not just a disciple of Jesus, he becomes a part of Jesus' inner circle, one of his 12 disciples, whom he's later going to send out as leaders within the church. And so Matthew himself is an eyewitness to the life, ministry, death, and yes, resurrection of Jesus. And one of the reasons why we give Matthew this nickname, the rabbi, is because as you read through his gospel account, what you find is over and over again, he's saying things like, all this happened to fulfill what was written. In fact, more than any other gospel writer, he quotes the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, over and over and over again. He says that everything that you see in the life of Jesus came about in order to fulfill what God had promised. What he'd promised to our ancestors down through the centuries is now coming to its culmination in Jesus. Now, all that is very, very fascinating from kind of like a scholarly perspective. But, but the question that we want to ask ourselves is, why does that matter? 
Why, why should we read Matthew's account now in the 21st century? What does this first century tax collector disciple of Jesus possibly have to say to us living in 21st century America? And in order to understand that, I want us to think about the, the times in which we live for just a moment. In his book, Homo Deus, Yuval Noah Harari says this about the times that we live in. He says, at the dawn of the third millennium, Humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. In the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Now, of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine and plague and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. See, what Harari is saying is he's saying, now in the 21st century, we as human beings have have advanced so far as a civilization, uh, civilization that as his title suggests, we've become the masters of our fate, the masters of our destiny. We actually know how to solve these huge insurmountable problems that the human race faces. And he's not the only one to take such an optimistic tone. Harvard professor Steven Pinker uh, has written several books on this topic, but his most recent, Enlightenment Now, he basically looks at the data and he shows actually empirically how if you look at the world as a whole, we've seen things like disease and famine and warfare go down when you compare it to previous centuries. And as a result, he's very optimistic about the future. He says, these enlightenment principles of reason and logic, we can marshal these to solve our deepest problems. They are firmly within our grasp and within our hands. It becomes hard to to see what Jesus and this old story from the first century possibly have to do with such an advanced modern world. And yet Andrew Sullivan, writing for uh, New York Magazine, uh, reviewed Pinker's book. And this is what he said in his review. I found this stunning. He said, Pinker doesn't have a way of explaining why, for example, there's so much profound discontent, depression, drug abuse, despair, addiction, and loneliness in the most advanced liberal societies. As we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we have lost something that undergirds all of it, meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the satiation of all our earthly needs. See, what Sullivan notes is like, yeah, okay, so war, famine, plague, those are going down, but there's other statistics that are going up. Discontent, depression, drug abuse, despair, addiction, loneliness, and what's surprising is they're going up in the very places where all those advancements should be making life better. Why? He says, because maybe there's something that we need more than simply our bellies being full and having a warm bed to sleep in. In fact, Pinker, uh, what, what Sullivan notes about Pinker's whole thesis is he says, it's really interesting that it's the very advances that we point to as progress are the cause of our discontent. In fact, it's the fact that we now live in a highly interconnected, globalized economy that we have things like global pandemics because we travel like we've never traveled before. It's in the society that created things like social media, which should be creating communities around the world that isolation and depression and despair are at an all-time high. The very advances we celebrate seem to undermine the fabric of our lives. You see, the point is, 
is that we're actually starving in the midst of abundance. Our souls are withering away in the midst of all that we have. Even now in the 21st century, we're realizing the truth of the conclusion that the 20th century writer C.S. Lewis pointed to when he wrote, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Because our world as it stands is a world filled with broken promises. Promises in which we say, yes, we have ways of connecting you like never before, and yet we are so lonely. A world that says you can make more money than you've ever imagined that people in past centuries couldn't even fathom, and yet we feel like we still don't have enough. A world where we're told we're secure by the most powerful military might the creation has ever seen, and yet we're constantly afraid of our neighbors. Something more is needed. And this is why Matthew's gospel is so important. Because what he shows us as he paints his portrait of Jesus is that in Jesus we have a better hope, a certain hope, and a present hope. A better hope, a certain hope, and a present hope. Let's take a look at each of these. One of the things that's interesting to note about Matthew's gospel is that it opens in a really bizarre way for us as modern people. It opens with a long list of names. It begins, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then it goes on. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, Perez the father of Hezra. 17 verses it goes on like this. Shall I continue? No, because you're like, we all have like Easter brunches to get to. But you know, right, like if you were just to open the New Testament for the very first time, you as a modern person, we look at this and we're just like, what is this? Matthew, don't you know how bestsellers are written? This is not how they start. Because we look at this list of names and we're like, what is going on here? For us, genealogies maybe at best are legal documents, right? They kind of show us like, yeah, this dude is legitimately a part of this family. But that's not how ancient people read them. That's not how ancient people read genealogies. When ancient people read genealogies, it was bringing to mind stories as they heard the names of these people read, what would have come to mind is the stories of all of their lives. As they read through the genealogies, they would be like, oh yeah, I remember, and he was the one who did this, and she was the one who did that, and so on and so forth. See, what genealogies told ancient people is that the person you're about to meet is the next chapter in this family's story. That's what it would have brought to mind. And what Jesus' genealogy brings to mind is the whole history of God's people, the people of Israel, from Abraham until the day that Jesus was born. And that's what Matthew wants us to be reflecting on. Why? Because what he's saying is he's saying the whole history of God's people is pointing to him. And this is important for us as modern people, because if you actually know the story of the history of God's people, what you see is that they were often looking for hopes that the world couldn't satisfy. Their story is our story. For example, think about this for just a moment. Say you, you're hoping that to find satisfaction in getting married, finding the love of your life, starting a family, and having kids. Well, you need only look at the story of Abraham to find that family and marriage doesn't always solve all of our issues. Because Abraham's family was a horribly dysfunctional family, and they fought and they hated each other. Some of them even tried to kill one another. 
Hopefully, you know, your Easter brunch isn't like that a little bit later on today. Or maybe you're sitting there and saying, you know what we really need? We need freedom from those who are oppressors. We need those who take advantage of the weak to be torn down off their thrones. We need freedom and liberation and justice. Well, what the genealogy from Matthew tells us is that then you need to look only at the life of Moses, who, yes, was able to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt, but couldn't remove the slavery from their hearts. Because once they had freedom, what did they do with it? They oppressed one another. Or maybe you think that what we really need is we just need stronger leaders and a stronger national identity. Well, then look at the book of Judges, where we find strong leaders raised up only to turn around and become just as bad as the leaders that they overthrew. Or maybe you think, well, what I need is I need wealth and power and security. I need to be the king of my own castle. Look at the life of David, the man who is God's chosen king, and yet his own sons rebelled against him. Or maybe you think, well, what I just need is wealth and comfort, and then I've got it made. Look at the life of Solomon, the man who had it all, wealth, women, fame, prestige, and yet he gets to the end of his life and says, what? It's all vanity, meaningless. It's just a vapor in the wind. Over and over and over again, the stories of the Old Testament say, it's not about those things. That's not where hope is found. We need a better hope. And Matthew, in writing his genealogy, is saying, remember all of those stories? They're pointing to this story. They're pointing to Jesus. Because in Jesus, all the promises that the world can't satisfy find their fulfillment in him. That's what they're proclaiming. And what's beautiful is, Matthew says, that's for everybody. Did you notice something else odd about his genealogy? His genealogy includes women. Now, ancient Near Eastern uh, genealogies, they would have never included women. They were interested in father to son. They were interested in patrilineal descent. Who gets the inheritance? Who's in charge of the clan? But Matthew includes women in his genealogy. And it's really fascinating the women that he includes. He says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why include these women? Well, if you know something about their stories, you realize that these women were outcasts. These were women who had checkered pasts. Rahab herself had been a prostitute until she learned about Yahweh and came to faith in him. Ruth was a foreigner from a pagan land who suddenly put her faith in the God of Israel. These women became the great-grandmothers of the Messiah, of Jesus, the Savior. What Matthew is saying is saying it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter where you come from. You are a part of this story. This hope is for you. And you are welcome into it. The better hope that Jesus gives us is that he fulfills all the promises that our world can't deliver on. That if you're longing for a true family, then Jesus welcomes you into a family made of every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you are longing for a better liberation, Jesus sets us free from the powers of death and darkness themselves. If you're looking for a strong leader, Jesus is the better Samson who lays down his life not for vengeance sake, but to save his people. 
If you're looking for a better king, you need to look only to Jesus, whose kingdom brings true justice, true righteousness, and is from, never, as, and is from everlasting to everlasting. If you're searching for your purpose, Jesus is the better Solomon, whose wisdom teaches us how life is meant to truly be lived. Jesus is all of it. He's the fulfillment of our deepest longings and desires. And Matthew says, I want you to understand this and to know him. He is the better hope. But he's also our certain hope. What do I mean by that? Well, when we gather here and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're not just celebrating a story. We're celebrating a fact of history. One of the things that many first century scholars of history have found is that the more you look at the historical evidence for Jesus, the more overwhelming the proofs for his resurrection are. I don't even have time to go into all of these proofs because honestly, you're sitting there wondering when Easter brunch is coming. Guys, I hear your tummy's rumbling. It is 1108. I get it. But listen to this. Just a couple of things. When we say that this is true, we find evidence of it all over the Bible and all over the pages of history. Matthew gives us just one little clue. You know, at the end of his gospel, as he's kind of coming into the final moments, he actually notes that there's a, there was a conspiracy to keep the resurrection quiet. I find it really fascinating. He says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, hey, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, don't worry, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Why would Matthew include something like that? See, modern people say, well, yeah, maybe Jesus was a great teacher, but miracles rising from the dead, that those sound more like fanciful things. Weren't those developed like hundreds of years after uh, Matthew's gospel was written? Weren't those developed hundreds of years after uh, Jesus actually lived and died? And what Matthew's saying is saying, no. In fact, this is the conspiracy that's still circulating today. There are people out there trying to keep this whole story quiet. He's writing to his contemporaries. He's writing to the people who were there. And what's amazing is that the conspiracy didn't work. That the good news of Jesus ended up overtaking the entire Roman world. And actually, there were even earlier people writing earlier than Matthew who said the same thing. St. Paul says this. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What's Paul saying? He's saying, the resurrection is true. And if you don't believe me, you can talk to any one of the eyewitnesses who was there. They're still alive. You can still search it out and find the evidence for yourself. Over and over and over again, they point to eyewitness testimony. And in fact, just look at the lives of the people who were themselves the eyewitnesses. These were not people who were seeking out comfort and fame and fortune. This was actually a horrible way to get comfort, fame, and fortune because every single one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, with the exception of John, died a horrible, painful death as an outcast. 
In fact, our own gospel writers faced incredible hardship as a result of proclaiming the truth that Christ is died and Christ is risen. Matthew himself was murdered while celebrating communion in Ethiopia. Mark was tied behind a horse and dragged through the streets until he died. Luke was hung from a tree until he was strangled to death. Every single one of these people was willing to die proclaiming Jesus Christ is risen. And you don't die for a lie. You don't spend your whole life enduring torture and being kicked out and being shunned as an outcast for something you know isn't true. They all went to their graves swearing we saw it happen. I wish I could go into more evidence, but there are people out there who are smarter than I who have already done that. One of the most titanic works when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus was the book, The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. It's over 800 pages long. And Wright, an Oxford-educated professor, goes through every single historical argument against the resurrection and shows the evidence points to the truth that Christ's tomb was empty and that he rose again from the dead. So overwhelming is the evidence that he gets to the end of his book and he says the historian has to say, how do we explain the fact that this movement spread like wildfire with Jesus as the Messiah even though he had been crucified? The answer has to be, it can only be because he was raised from the dead. And if you're like 800 pages sounds a little too overwhelming, you can go to other books by guys like William Lane Craig, a Cambridge-educated scholar who wrote The Sun Rises, or you can look to countless other books. What we find is the more you study history, the more you see this happened. It's a certain hope. The reason we believe it is because it's true. We don't base our, our faith on fairy tales. We base it on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. It's a certain hope. And as a result, it demands response. I love how James Martin in his column for the Wall Street Journal said this. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you can go on living your life with perhaps, uh, while perhaps admiring Jesus the man, appreciating his example, and even putting into practice some of his teachings. But if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, however, everything changes. In that case, you cannot set aside any of his teachings. Because a person who rises from the grave, who demonstrates his power over death, and who has definitively proven his divine authority needs to be listened to. What that person says demands a response. If Jesus rose again from the dead, it changes everything. So what did he come to do? What's the response he calls forth from us? Is it simply to bend the knee to his rule and power, as the Game of Thrones line very popularized? Is it get into shape and follow me, otherwise you're going to burn? No. Matthew tells us what response is called for. He tells us why Jesus came. The very beginning of his gospel, when the angel appears to Joseph, you guys know the Christmas story, right? What does the angel tell him? Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which literally means God saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see right there what he's saying is he's saying, what is Jesus calling? What response is he calling you to? Is to trust him. Why? Because he came to give his life for you. 
to die for the ways in which all of us have fallen short, to welcome us into his family and to be with us no matter what. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. This past year, we have learned as a result of this pandemic how debilitating loneliness is. How hard it is to face life's trials by yourself. And what Jesus says is nothing will separate you from my love. I came for you to walk with you, to give you a hope that will not disappoint, promises that I will fulfill. And the reason you know is because I am alive again. And this is the bookend of Matthew's gospel. He doesn't just start there, he ends there. What's the last line of Matthew's gospel? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says, I came to be with you. Nothing more, nothing less. To welcome you into a relationship which has no end. Jesus is a better hope, a certain hope, a present hope. How do we apply this? Three things, really briefly. First and foremost, if you've been looking for hope in all the wrong places, your invitation this morning is to put your hope in the one who can truly deliver on his promises and to receive the better hope that only he can give. Number two, if you've never looked at the evidence, start now. Join us for this series. When you walked in, you should have received a guide which is inviting you to read these biographies for yourself over the next four weeks to look at the evidence and to explore it. And last but not least, if you've never had an opportunity to experience the presence of Jesus in your life, you have an invitation to come and be baptized this morning. At the end of his gospel, that's when Matthew says, Jesus' instructions to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This morning, after the service, if you've never been baptized, come here. Step forward. Be baptized and receive the gift of his presence and his forgiveness, which will go with you always. Because when you do, you will learn to truly sing with all God's people, I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives, he lives who once was dead. He lives, my ever-living head. It's in the name of Jesus, who is indeed our risen Lord, our Savior, our better, certain, and present hope, that we say thanks be to God. Amen.